What is up? Welcome back to Modern Day Marketer. I'm your host, Brett McGrath. It is Friday. You know what that means. I'm bringing on someone in the content space, someone in the marketing space that is full of knowledge. And I'm joined by Patrick Ward, VP of Marketing at Rootstrap. We are talking about how to do B2B influencer marketing the right way. The right way. That means there's probably a wrong way to do it. I'm sure we're going to get into that too. Go listen to this episode. You're going to learn something. I think operating like a media company, bringing in the right people to help extend your audience, extend your brand is what it's all about today in B2B marketing. And Patrick is someone who's been there and done that. So make sure you listen in and take out your notepad. This one's full of insights and information. If you like what we're doing over here, hit the subscribe button. Tell a friend that you're enjoying Modern Day Marketer. And I can't forget to tell you, go sign up to be a creator on the wait list. The Juice Creator Pages wait list is live. You can do that. Hit it, the link in the show notes. We'd love to have you sign up. You'll hear more from me. Without further ado, let's kick it to the conversation. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Modern Day Marketer. I am excited about today's guest. I'm excited about today's topic. It's something that I certainly have been working through at The Juice. Today's guest has a lot of experience and we're going to talk about it and hopefully I learn something. I think hope it'll be something that you all learn from too. So without further ado, I'm joined by Patrick Ward, who's the VP of Marketing at Rootstrap. And we're going to be talking about how to do B2B influencer marketing the right way. Patrick, welcome. How are you? Really great. Glad to be here, Brett. Before we get started, tell me a little bit about Rootstrap. Um, I always like to let our guests plug their companies, talk a little bit about what your company is up to and kind of uh, what your prior, like, I know you're the VP of marketing, but kind of what that means at Rootstrap. Totally. So Rootstrap is a custom software development agency. But as I always say to people, that means nothing to no one because there are thousands of us out there. So the thing that I like to tell people is we are the tech team behind Masterclass. So if you decided during the pandemic to learn a Gordon Ramsay recipe, that was using our technology. Uh, And in terms of my specific role, being the VP of marketing, like many B2B companies, my focus is primarily on client acquisition, helping uh, new partners join uh, the Rootstrap family, helping them achieve their goals when it comes to technology, and then obviously building the, the Rootstrap brand. And very excited to talk to you today about what we're going to talk about, which is something near and dear to me of B2B influencer marketing, because so many people think of it as a buzzword, but they don't think about it in the right way. I love it. So let's let, let maybe like we can get into your background with influencer marketing and everything you've done, but maybe let's, let's start on that side of like, we're talking about doing it the right way today. Maybe like, what are some of those things that like right out of the gates when people are talking about influencer marketing and you see it maybe on Twitter, maybe you see it in Slack communities. Like, what are those like, just so we can like set the stage at the beginning of the conversation, like what are those like wrong ways to think about it and wrong ways to do it before we jump into the right way? So the the biggest way that people misconstrue influencer marketing is they think about it in terms of virality. And this makes sense of why they do it. Because let's look at the, the origin of influencer marketing. Where did it come from? It came primarily from the B2C space. And it's not a new concept if you think about it. We've been having brand ambassadors uh, for, you know, 
many, many decades at this point. You can even go back as far as like the French aristocracy in the 1700s, which were literally plugging certain high fashion labels at the time. So influencer marketing is not a new concept, but what has been unique, particularly when it intersects with social, is that suddenly we were seeing, you know, the advent of the Instagram influencer. These were people with millions of followers, with very idyllic lifestyles, and that's kind of the framework that most B2B companies looked at it. And this is not necessarily a wrong approach in the sense of B2B often learns a lot from B2C. B2C being dealing with the the fickle nature of the consumer, a consumer that moves much more rapidly than in the B2B space, often has more innovative forms of marketing. And so it made sense to try and learn some of the lessons from B2C influencer, but the big problem was suddenly people were thinking, oh, well, if I just tap into someone who has millions of views, that's going to be the key to making B2B influencer marketing work for myself. And I can tell you, I ran it uh, for the first year I was at Rootstrap. We took one of our co-founders. We adopted a certain philosophy. We were getting those millions of views. And what did it lead to in revenue? Zero. Absolutely nothing. It was getting all the right signs. We got lots of comments. Lots of people were loving our co-founder. We were getting messages from people saying, like, I really love his content. But at the end of the day, it wasn't yielding a result. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit more in depth later in this conversation, which I'm excited to talk about, where if you're just focusing on the views, you're actually skewing your efforts away from real ROI, real revenue, real growth that can actually make a difference for your business. I'm excited to get into the right way to do it and dig into that. But before we get off of this, I want you, you mentioned virality. And just so we can make it super clear for the audience to think about virality or not think about virality, I think when we think about it from like, oh, we're going to create this thing and our goal from this thing is to go viral, typically that that falls flat and all of this work that we just did amounted to nothing. And so we abandoned ship um, on the strategy, which when in turn, like maybe the strategy wasn't bad, but it was just the way we went about looking at the goals were bad. So can can we like say right here, right now, like if we're a B2B marketer, like we should never approach anything we do from a creation and distribution perspective with the goal of like, we're going to make this viral. Is it fair to say that? It is a hundred percent fair to say that. And let me give you a very specific example of why this is true. So the core offering that Rootstrap offers software development, Minimum engagement, $150,000. Right off the bat there, very few people, myself included, cannot spend $150,000 on an engagement. And so what this means is when you are skewing your efforts towards virality, you have to adopt a mass market approach. Well, that is in direct conflict with what you are selling. And this is true right across the board. Even many of my B2B SaaS compatriots I speak to on a regular basis, even when their product only costs $10,000 or $20,000 or $50,000, and those are low ACV amounts, even so, you still do not want to be targeting your approach based on virality because by definition, 
for something to go viral, it needs to speak to a very large audience. So that co-founder that I mentioned, that we tried this for a year, what was the breakdown of the people who were viewing our content? It was students. It was really early career developers and a lot of just non, non-marketing folk, non-sales folk, non-tech folk, all of these people that were our core audience. And so suddenly it didn't matter that we got thousands of comments saying, I love your work because none of those people were going to buy. And when we come back to the core idea of influence, it's not just enough to have lots of views, but you're trying to influence a behavior. You're trying to influence the minds of your particular buyer. And so in that respect, absolutely not. You do not want to be going viral because any effort that goes viral by definition, will not target a niche. And I would argue every single B2B company out there, especially with the world of rife competition that we live in right now, has to be targeting a niche or you're not going to be successful. So uh, we're going to dive into this more, I'm sure, throughout the conversation. But like, as I heard you talk to that, I, all I kept thinking about is this experience I have as a B2B marketer working in SaaS and just this obsession that we still have. It might not be virality, but it's this obsession of quantity. I want want more leads. I want more when in all reality, we should be focused on quality. And so I think thinking about it from that point of view and that perspective, really, it's a mind shift, I think. And it's a and this is off topic, but maybe we'll get into it more. But I just think about like how we're communicating to our boards about what we're doing in marketing. And you know, traditional SaaS metrics and machines say, you know, we need this many of leads in order to get this much pipeline in order to drive this many sales. When if we're, we're thinking about that, like that old school approach in old way, we might be missing the mark, which is reaching out, having a message or a campaign that resonates with a smaller group, but the right group that is going to be a customer and probably a customer for a very long time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the funny thing is, we got the tools in the, you know, the start of the 2000s to start to measure more of marketing's efforts. And I'll be the first to say, you cannot measure everything that marketing does because by definition, it is a qualitative field. Yes, you can put quantitative measures to it, but it is still dealing in that psychology area of how do you shape a person's mind over time. But having said that, if we go and show oh, the success of our influencer campaign is that we got 1 million views. Most boards are going to go, so what? What does that mean? Why are you giving me vanity metrics? I thought marketing had transcended vanity metrics. So it is, it is tough. I get it. It, it. It's a dopamine hit in many ways. I saw this firsthand with my co-founder. Each time he hit over a million views, he was very excited. But when I checked him on it and said, look, this is all well and good that you got a million views, but where's the leads? And then he was like, Patrick, you're right. You know, I need to not get ahead of myself here because it's not moving the needle on the business. And that's really what we should be focusing on. Marketing is in such a wonderful position now. I've seen firsthand where we have gone from being dub the party people or the people who just make things look pretty. And now we are a vital part of the growth engine of many successful companies. 
but we do not want to you know, lose ground on where we have come just because we get allured by you know, the shiny object of, can I get a million views on LinkedIn or YouTube or TikTok or whichever platform comes on along? No doubt about it. I could probably riff on this forever, but let's get back to the influencer marketing portion. So you mentioned when you came into Rootstrap, you had this influencer strategy that you know you ran for a year that didn't necessarily work out the way that you planned or the way it was designed. Obviously, before you came in, you probably had some sort of intuition and instinct or background in influencer marketing. Maybe like share with the audience, like what has your, how long has your experience been working with influencer marketing? Kind of where does that that passion come from? So this comes back way, way back from my advertising days. So I started right at the the nascent period of when social media marketing was becoming more than just, you know, a platform where you could, you know, meet with your friends and was actually becoming a a true demonstrable channel for marketers to influence people. And from that, I started in many similar spaces that I mentioned before in B2C. I started with uh, travel influence, then there was some lifestyle influence that I was a part of for a while growing a lot of uh, accounts uh, in that space, dealing with brand partnerships. What I realized from that is really in the early days of e-commerce was that most of those were geared towards a very small percentage of conversion, right? In many ways, that's how the B2C influencer model works. If you get large amounts of views and you can convert 1% of those views to buy a makeup line, uh, a fashion label, you know, these sorts of small ticket, you know, fairly low involvement purchases, then that's deemed a success. That is really where the metrics of it lies. When we come over to my world in B2B, I knew those same core principles could still apply. I needed to crack how that was going to be the case because when you think about it, it's still the same buyer. You're still trying to influence a human. You are still trying to go to trusted sources that they have for information because the fact of the matter is very few brands out there have the level of clout, have the level of reputation where they can put out a message and people will accept it at face value. We can think of the brands pretty much on on our hand. They're the Nikes of the world, the Apples of the world, And what do those companies have? Multi-billion dollar brand budgets. Now, a better strategy, especially when you're a B2B marketer and you often have, you know, very rigorous budgeting processes. I know that many of my fellow marketers go through a real rough time when it comes to finance of looking at every single dollar that they're spending, tying it to an objective, tying it to an ROI or a revenue metric. And so I think this is where you understand that really the power of influencer marketing is tapping into existing audiences. That's the key. What you're trying to do as a brand when you're partnering with the right type of influencer is someone who is trusted within a community. Hopefully that community is, if you've identified it correctly, your ICP. And if it is your ICP, then you're going to start to gather some of that mind share, you know, when they're thinking about your solution versus other solutions. 
That's really why you get involved in B2B influencer marketing. And that to me is why, yes, it is a component of marketing, but to me, why I was really excited about it is it was the whole reason I got into marketing in the first place. I did a marketing major in college with a psychology minor. That was my motivation, really understanding how people think, why people think the way they do. And that at its core is just good marketing. And so I think what I've seen with the way that B2B influencer marketing has evolved, certainly when you compare it to the B2C space, in my mind, it's done it the right way. Because B2C has often ended up with various influencers who have just ended up shills for products. You know, you, you look at the amount of controversies, even if you want to look at like the latest scandals around influencers shilling, you know, shit coins in crypto, you know, that's all happening in the B2C space. The funny thing is, when you look at the B2B space, the influencers there are far more rigorous. They are far more controlling of how they disseminate your brand message. And this is a good thing because it allows them to continue to preserve that trust with their audience. They understand, I would argue, better than the B2C influencers, how crucial trust is to the transaction. And they will not want to jeopardize that, particularly because it's not just themselves, it's potentially other companies they represent. Uh, It's the understanding that their career is on the line, as opposed to in the B2C space where it's more, can I make a quick buck? There's so many good nuggets in there. I love how you called out trust. And you said a few things that I want to like get down in the weeds a little bit on. But before we do that, when, you know, we as marketers, I think B2B marketers who are looking to start influencer programs, you know, we we don't necessarily go look at other B2B companies and what they're doing. I think just by instinct, it's looking at like, what are the consumer brands that inspire us? Like, what are they doing online? And that's what I think gets us to think about, okay, well, you know, the Nikes and the Apples or, you know, fill in the blank brand are doing X. So we need to go apply that when in all actuality, everything you just said really makes it non-sustainable based on budget, based on just audience and all that stuff. But what I want to know from you before we get on, like what we should be doing, what are the things that like you can call out, like right out of the gates that you've seen that us as B2B marketers should not pull from the B2C side because you know that if we do these things, they are going to fail. Yeah, the the critical thing here is not getting too overly concerned with how your brand is going to be presented because you need to trust your influencer far more. You cannot package a campaign, deliver it to a bunch of influencers the same way. And why is this? because it comes back to the fundamentals of how the business operates. So when we look at B2C marketing, and I'll use this as the comparison, what can you do? I can go on a number of different marketplaces right now. I can get a whole list of influencers in various different areas, fashion, travel, lifestyle, et cetera. I will get breakdowns of their metrics, and I can literally hand them a campaign and set up the terms, set up the contract, set up the payment, all of that's facilitated through a middleman. That's it. B2B does not have that. And for good reason, because you're going to be dealing with niche complexity, right? When you're dealing with finding the right influencer, there isn't an aggregate of all B2B influencers. 
you're going to have to tailor that one-to-one. And that level of approach means that you have ceded a whole bunch of control to the influencer. And it makes sense because what has this also intersected with? It's intersected with the phenomenon of the dark funnel or dark social. I know there are various different terms for it, but suffice to say, everything that attribution platforms don't really measure right now. And what are these? These are social chats. These are DMs. These are communities. These are Slack groups. These are all these areas that we know as marketers that B2B buyers are spending a lot of time in. They're spending their time there. They're speaking with peers. They're learning from them. Now, all of that is a phenomenon of influence. And you can, if you tap the right leaders of these communities, the right people who aggregate the right types of buyer personas that you want to tackle, you can definitely set up campaigns with them. But they're going to be very scrupulous. They're going to be very concerned that they do not cannibalize their existing relationship with their audience. Particularly, I might add, that when you look specifically with communities, which I'm definitely recommending is one of the first places that you as a B2B marketer want to look at if you want to start an influencer campaign, the key with B2B communities is they're often quite expensive. And that expense is often coming from either the individual because they want to increase their professional development, or it's coming from the companies they represent. If they are not getting enough value because their communities have been saturated with sellers, then suddenly they're going to up and leave. And suddenly that community is no longer valuable. This is why you have to be careful. Now, this is a hard concept for a lot of people because they understand like, yes, I hear you. I need to cede control, but brands don't like doing that. Brands love telling exactly the narrative they have in their mind and they just want to distribute that message. But Newsflash, this is not early social. That was the same mistake that brands made there. They thought they could just broadcast a message and that message would be received. We're not in that era anymore. And so you need to, rather than try and force the creative to fit the influencer, think about who are you trying to reach and how can you authentically create a campaign together with the influencer that meets their goals as well as helps you achieve your brand purpose. So when we're talking about getting started with an influencer campaign, you said, or maybe not camp, maybe campaign is like strategy. Like it's just part of your DNA is what you want to do as a marketing team. I think so often what we want to do is find someone and just like go after them and expect it to be a transaction. Well, you, you said like B2B doesn't have like, this transactional platform or mindset in place because of the complexity. And you mentioned the channels, right? There's like Twitter, people hang out, LinkedIn, Slack communities. So are you, are you recommending that if we want to get started and get started the right way, like, and I know like we're ambitious people as marketers, but maybe the right thing to do is join some communities and just listen, listen to the conversation, see what people are saying and see which topics, see which people are talk, sharing information and ideas that, is, that are adjacent to kind of your brand message or brand promise or how you want to be going to market? Is that, is that, would that be a recommendation of like how, how we should get started and kind of like a crawl, walk, run approach? 
Yeah, let's look at the crawl, walk, run, because certainly from the crawl perspective, you're absolutely right. You need to get involved in these communities first to just figure out who people are talking about. Because like I said, unlike B2C, there is no aggregate platform. You're not going to find a ready list of you know, B2B influencers, what are their rates, uh, how much they charge per post. That's not the types of engagements. Generally speaking, the engagements you deal with when it comes to B2B influencers, it's very custom. It's very curated for depending on what type of brand you are and what you're offering. Because think about it, you're not just buying an e-commerce transaction. You're not just buying conversion. You are trying to build a relationship over a long period of time with a key influencer that your buyers listen to. And so given that you need to be in the spaces where your buyers are and just see who do they respect? Whose recommendation do they listen to? When they have a problem or a product product or service that they're seeking for their organization, who do they go to for those recommendations? So that's the crawl step. When we look at the walk step, this is where we start running campaigns ourselves. Now, you can kind of do it in a manner of two, I would say. You can either start reaching out directly if you have team members, uh, particularly I've found uh, PR specialists within your company are really good at this. uh, And a lot of their skill set often matches for uh, dealing with journalists in the same way Mm -hmm. as dealing with influencers. So you can start doing that approach of reaching out, trying to start some of these campaigns. And again, as with any recommendation, start small, build that trust with that influencer as you can build more expansive campaigns in the future as you build out your strategy. A second idea here is where you can go to certain concierges that understand uh, who are the appropriate people. And I want to give a shout out to one guy who I spoke at a conference with, Tom Algenthaler from 551 Media. This guy set up HP Enterprises social influencer space or practice, I should say, back in, I want to say 2014. So one of the OGs. This guy really knows who's who in the space. If you have a very niche B2B offering, chances are he's got five people who would be a perfect fit for you. And then the final area of run, this is the scariest part. It takes the longest amount of time, but it is worthwhile. And that is building what I call in-house influences. This is where you take key people across your organization and you turn them into influences in the space. This is a challenging thing to do for a couple of reasons. One, you need to be comfortable knowing that there won't be necessarily immediate ROI because it takes time to build influence and credibility. And the second area is you need to be careful because as a representative of your brand, you are somewhat going to be tied to that. And so you need to basically find ways to build credibility first outside of your brand, and then you can loop your brand back into it. Now, I want to give a couple of concrete examples to show what this looks like. So, for example, my current CTO, we have found that his technical writing is where his sweet spot lies. 
He's really good at taking really complex ideas and putting them into simplified terms that many business executives can understand. We identified a platform that was medium. And since doing that over the last six months, we've generated a million dollars of pipeline purely from his articles. People have read his articles, come back to us saying, no, I really liked what he said, this, this, and this. It spoke to the problem that I'm trying to solve for my tech company. Can we have a conversation? That's one approach. Can I ask you a question about that approach? So how did you get there? Like, I'm, I'm imagining you're kind of, you're, you're the quarterback of the process, but like, how, how did you, like, I, I feel like a lot of people struggle, like uh, marketers uh, getting other members of the organization to do marketing type of things. And then before they do it, say you should do this because it will end in X amount of pipeline. Like, how did you get there with your CTO? So this is one of the early things I think of any marketing leader is understanding, you already understand your customer, right? That's already your mandate as a marketer. But you need to understand your executives the exact same way. And so once you start to understand what drives them and really hone in on this, this is a funny thing about executives. Executives, don't, and, and no disrespect to them, do not often tell you the truth straight up. They often tell you the quote-unquote party line. They tell you, you know, what sounds good. And you often have to dig several times to get them to really let up on what, what motivates them. Usually I know I've succeeded with an executive when they throw up their hands and have a little bit of an exasperated sigh because I've got to something true. So I did this exercise with my CTO. I figured out like what really mattered to him. And the fact of the matter was, as much as he enjoys our company, at at his heart is basically a tinkerer with tech. He just loves talking about cool new applications with tech. So he obviously was not going to write all of this material himself. I knew that. But he's really good at getting on a rant. So I just set him up. I trained a ghostwriter. I said, look, Today, we're going we're gonna to pretend like this is a mini podcast and you're just going to rant on this topic and we're going to take all of those insights, we're going to put them out, we're going to publish them under your name and we're going to see what happens. Now, what did this do? First of all, it allowed him to indulge a true passion of his, which is talking about technology and you know, feeling like he actually was getting himself out there, but it wasn't putting a burden on him. Now, because it was satisfying that short-term goal, that short-term emotional need of the executive, that gave us the room in which to let it run its course. Because as you say, it took time. It takes time before those results materialize. I can tell you that that million dollars of pipeline did not come in month one. Most of it came in month five and six. And that is by design because by that point, He built up several layers of credibility. And then you start creating the flywheel effect because once we got one area that was not too taxing on his time, that it was still fulfilling his emotional need, suddenly we had material. We had material to get him in conferences, 
key industry events, other areas which we knew our buyers would be at. And same approach. As his influence grows, more and more people start to be attracted to him. That was the key to setting that up for success. Now, I want to draw attention to another way that you do this. That works for a technical buyer. When you think of other areas of your organization, maybe you've got product, maybe you've got your CEO, maybe you've got your HR leaders, maybe you've got your sales and marketing leaders. The key here, again, is leaning into each individual's strengths and how they want to present themselves. Because I think one of the mistakes that we make with influencer marketing is we try and turn it into this idea of, okay, well, the way you become an influencer is only through video is everything, or no, conference speaking is everything, or no, you need to be a book author. And I think that's a mistake because you're not leaning into each individual's strengths. When you lean into the strengths, that's when the strategy really starts to build momentum because it's less taxing on them. So what does that mean? I'm going to get a little meta on you, but I myself am doing the same for Rootstrap. But what do I do? I tend to do it in speaking formats. I do it on podcasts. I do it at conferences. I tend to do less on the writing side than I do on the speaking side. And that's again, because I'm much more comfortable doing this sort of live approach, an approach where I'm interacting with someone, where I'm influencing an audience. That's my sweet spot. That's my strength. It's not writing like my CTO is, or it's not coming up with a lot of ideas around something that could be put into a book, put into a PDF. When you think about influence in that way, and when you can start to create that across your organization for multiple different people, who will speak to multiple different audiences. Because I guarantee you, for every B2B company I speak to, they don't just have one ICP. There's usually multiple people, especially when they're talking to mid-market or enterprise customers. You, know, you have to be influencing 10, 15, 20, 25 people, all with different ways. Well, what would that look like for your organization if you suddenly had your marketer speaking to the marketing team? your tech person speaking to the head of engineering, your CEO influencing the CEO. That is really what the power of influencer marketing can be. Yes, it is uh, surrounding those companies you're trying to go after. And a couple of comments here is like, from the first example, working with your CTO, I think one trait of modern day marketers that doesn't get talked about enough, but is critically important to be successful is just the skills of being a facilitator internally and externally. We want to publish, we want to produce, we want to ship as marketers. But like oftentimes, like as, I, as I've grown in my career, it's kind of taken a step back and trying to figure out where you can facilitate. And I think that example you shared um, was one to call out. And then the other one about just like your superpower and skill set, it's like, I call it podcast inception when you're kind of in this mode of on a podcast talking about how you got there. But, you know, for the audience, like Patrick reached out to me in a group that we're both in and it's a big group and we didn't know each other, but he got my attention and I looked up, looked into what he was about, looked into what topics he wanted to talk about. And I said, you know what, like, this is a great fit for what we do on the show. So that's how it came to be. So I just think it's, it's good to call those things out and it's good to just recognize that, 
you don't need to be a master of everything or a jack of all trades. Just like focus in on what you believe and you know you're really good at. And if you're able to be consistent on that channel or in that format, over time, if you're it's pointing in the right direction, you're going to build and develop influence. I couldn't agree more. I think everyone always does this as a marketer. And I understand. I know our innate curiosity can often get the better of us where we try and chase the shiny object. Oh, well, we should get on TikTok. Why? Because uh, TikTok's the latest you know, viral trend or something along those lines. Much better to think about where are you going to be consistent? What are the areas that your executive team, your key leaders care about the most? You know, I, I want to give another quick example here. Again, my CEO. My CEO is very rigid about what gets written about him. And that is a wonderful thing. So what does that mean? He would never do a podcast like we're doing because he just wouldn't like the fact that he couldn't control what he was going to say. He, he's a very introspective person and loves to consolidate his thoughts mm -hmm. before he speaks. That's fine. I'm not pressuring him to do that. But when we have large-scale white papers that we want to put together with business use cases, we use the fact that he, when he started his career, was a writer. And so he loved writing. So great, we'll tap into that. I think that is always the key when you're thinking, don't go against innate tendencies within your organization, especially as marketers, because we're always asking for, you know, we're asking for help from product. We're asking for help from HR. We're asking from engineering. We're always asking people for things. And that's a good thing. That's, I loved your term for it, Brett, of facilitation. That's our superpower. But make it easy for people to give you what you need as a marketer. No doubt about it. So as we're kind of rounding the corner on this episode in conversation, the let's let's think about the marketer out there who understands everything that we just talked about, understands that they should be doing influencer marketing and they shouldn't be doing it like their favorite B2C company, but they get being in communities, they get the whole approach. However, they're working in a business that is still running a playbook from maybe five to 10 years ago. And it's, it's the playbook that got their boss and their boss's boss promoted. So there, there's this friction where they're being told to do something that they don't necessarily believe in, but it's just the way it's always been. Like, what is your recommendation for that individual who's trying to break through? Like, how can they begin to validate like this strategy and what you're working on kind of even before you get started, like what recommendations would you have for those people out there? So I have a little bit of a contradictory approach here, but I want to share it because I think when you're in those organizations, and I've definitely been in those uh, myself, I find that the marketers who fail are the ones who constantly try to re-educate from the start. Mm. And that often fails. Like you said, we it was a playbook that worked for a boss or a boss's boss. And unfortunately, confirmation bias persists within all human beings. So I think the better approach is what can you do to deliver those results that matter or enough of those results that matter so that you can build some time mm. for you to do the things that will work, that you know will work? 
the thing of why I started with my CTO, even I'll go back to that example. I started with him because I saw there was a desire and a passion for him to participate with what I was doing. I didn't tell anyone else. I didn't tell the CEO. I didn't tell the head of engineering. I didn't tell the head of product. I didn't tell anyone else in the organization I was doing this. I just focused on him first. And because I built up enough of the other attributes that mattered, what mattered, pipeline, I built enough of a predictable pipeline. I'd shown through reporting cadences that I was taking care of that. Suddenly I wasn't getting questions. When you don't have questions to answer, suddenly all this time started freeing up in my day. Suddenly I was having two, three, four hours a day where I wasn't having to focus on the core of what I was delivering. That allows me to do experimentation. That's the key. You don't start with the experimentation. You just build the time for you to do it. And then you can do the thing that all marketers are very good at, which is blowing smoke up your ass once you succeed. And I've had this many times over where people go, oh, I never expected that to work. And I always knew it was going to work, but I just needed the time to do it. That's the key. Don't try and fight your C-suite from the start. Build some time, prove out a concept, because once you've proven something and with data that matters, again, I go back to that CTO example, a million dollars in pipeline speaks for itself. If I had asked for that straight out the gate, oh, I want to do this long-term thought leadership influencer strategy with my CTO and it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take some writing resources and it's going to take people away from other things. That would have been laughed out of the room. But by doing it quietly, by doing it to a level that, you know, look, it's not super sophisticated. I certainly hope to do it in an even more expansive way for the coming years, but at least I've proven a model that works. And once you've proven the model that works, then you watch the investment starts to flow in. Suddenly I saw the start of this year, what happened? CEO goes, you know what, if you want a, a four to $5,000 content budget on top of the two full-time content highs, go ahead, like do that. They start suggesting, your C-suite starts suggesting additional investment for you rather than you have to fight for it. It's a wonderful position to be in, but don't get too stubborn. Marketers do this all the time. They get too stubborn thinking like, I know marketing, I know my way, I should just do this. Do what matters to your C-suite first. Then you'll have earned enough trust to do the things that they don't quite see yet. That insight is some of my favorite insight that I've heard yet on this podcast. We're going to stop there. <laughs> that's, that's good. Everyone take, take out your notepad, write that stuff down. Patrick, this was amazing. I learned a ton. I know our audience did too. Before we let you go, what do you want to plug? Where, where can people find you? Uh, where do you want to send people? So people can either visit our website, www.rootstrap.com, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash IN slash Patrick James Ward. Thanks a lot, Patrick. We'll have to have you back on. There's a lot of different topics that I know I could go Broadway with you on. Love it, Brett. Really appreciate it. 
really enjoyed that conversation. I think it's really important right now to think about how you can extend your audience authentically through the right people. And Patrick is someone with a ton of experience and knowledge. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Take care of yourself. Take care of others around you. We will be back with more Modern Day Marketer next week.